0: Welcome to Build. This is Maggie. Today, I have Deirdre Kaur on the show. She runs consumer experience product at Robinhood. Before that, she was the chief product officer at the Skim, an engineer, and then a PM at ESPN, among other roles. And she's the perfect guest for today's topic, which is managing product managers. We get into coaching PMs, how the role changes with different company stages, and advice for making the jump from PM to manager of PMs. I hope you enjoy it. Deerja, welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yes, I am also really excited because we are going to talk about something that I have been dying to talk about, and that's managing product managers and how that changes across different company stages and over time. But where I would love to start is that it seems like, at least in my experience, compared to other roles, maybe like development, that product management is a little bit more nebulous in terms of what the role is and how our product managers are evaluated. So I'd love to start by getting your take on why you think that might be the case and kind of what's different about the role.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this is like the million dollar question, because I do think that managing product managers and just product management in general has a set of pretty unique challenges. So just for some context, before I became a PM, I was an engineer, I was an EM. And let me tell you, uh, I strongly believe that being an engineering manager is a lot more straightforward and easier than being a manager or product managers. And so a couple, I think the biggest reason for that is that With PM, the role by its nature means there's this layer of abstraction from the day-to-day and what the team and the PMs are actually doing when you're a manager. So just as like a very tactical example, when you're a design manager, an engineering manager, you are directly involved to an extent in their actual work, right? Whether you're an EM and you're reviewing their code or you're a design manager and you're doing design reviews, it's a lot more tangible. Like you have a pretty... Strong, you, you have the ability to gather a pretty strong sense week to week of the output of the people that you're managing and the quality of the work. With PMs, it's the total opposite, right? Because while there are some artifacts that you can use to coach PMs or keep tabs on how things are going, like their PRDs or their strategy docs, that is not the full picture, right? Because the the role of a PM is essentially, you know, you're the ringleader for the team, you're pulling all the pieces together, you're driving results. And so a lot of the output is the overall output of the team. And so it can be a little bit hard to figure out, okay, what's actually working and not working about the PM specifically. The other thing I'll say is just like your feedback loops aren't as tight, right? Because of that layer of abstraction, What I find is that if you're not super on top of it, you can often get there can often be a much longer lag in realizing if something is off or something is not going well, quite frankly, because you often have to rely on their peers on the team, whether it's their engineers or designers to kind of raise the flag. So in general, like it's just it's just harder. Right. Because I think the the role of a PM can just be, uh, again, a little bit more abstracted from from that kind of tangible work.
0: Yeah. And a thing that I think about a lot is that on the subject of how to know whether how it's going along the way and not there not being a lot of tangible things you can look at. It's also how do I balance inserting myself enough so that I can I can do in the moment coaching. Cause we all know that of course you want to be there when something's going on to help or to help coach. But to know when those moments are happening, there's this you have to be there. And especially remote, it's like, okay, well, what you know, I don't want to come to your meeting because it's your meeting, but I also want to be able to help you how you did in that meeting. So I'm curious, how do you handle that type of thing? Or do do you think you figure out a good way to manage the like, I don't want to be a micromanager, but I still want to be there for you?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Because, you know, similar to this comparison to design or engineering, a lot of what you need to see to understand how things are going or give feedback is in the examples you mentioned, like joining different plannings or joining meetings, and just understanding how they're running the team overall. And that can be really challenging. So um, I don't, I wouldn't say I have the like silver bullet answer. I think this is what again one of the hardest parts about managing PMs. But I think the the biggest thing that I had to overcome when I first managed started managing PMs was adopting a over communication style with management where you flag things well before you have all the information. So just as an, so to, to, to put a finer point on that, what I'll often, like your, your spidey senses go off, right? When something isn't right, whether that's because you can sense that output is slowing down or you're kind of like hearing some rumblings that maybe the team isn't functioning super well. You sense these things, right? Like, and, and you trust your instincts. And I think what, managers will often do is wait till they've got all the information to have kind of a very structured conversation around feedback, right? And I think with PMs, that's, that could be a little bit of a chicken and egg, right? Because in order to gather the information, you might need to dig in a little bit. And to your point, digging in might come across as micromanaging. And so one thing that I've learned to do, and I'm still working on, to be honest, is to raise the flags directly with the PMs, even when you don't have all the information. Like, you know, you have a one-on-one, you figure out kind of a communication style around this, but you're essentially like, hey, Something feels off here. <laughs> Here's what I'm seeing and hearing, and I don't really know exactly what's going on. I generally want to be here. To, I want. I want to be helpful here. What if I shadowed a meeting here, or can you show me some of the docs that you're working on? And and you you essentially flag when your spidey senses go off, and you figure out a way to communicate that so it doesn't. It, they don't get on the defensive, but it's 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 framed as an opportunity to dig in with them to coach.
0: Yeah, and I also think that kind of along these lines, the role itself is nebulous. I think even a manager of PMs and then a manager of a manager of PMs, like it just gets more nebulous as you go. And so I also find that a way around that awkwardness of I need to be in this meeting to help you is me saying, this is what I'm trying to figure out how to help you and how to be a good manager. And like, this is an idea that I had. Another one, you know, is to be in this meeting with you. And another one that we've done, especially now that that we're remote is, hey, can you record that planning, that meeting, whatever, and send me the recording and then I'll do like a feedback session with you on it. That is an awesome idea, by the way. <laughs> and yeah. it's something
1: that is way easier in
0: remote world. So that, I right. love that. Absolutely. Well, yeah. I think that part of it is like, and maybe this is my personality showing through, but I find that like it's hard for me to be silent and it changes the dynamic of the room when your manager is there. And so I try to be like, how do I get information and help without inserting myself into the process?
1: I totally agree with that. And then I think this is remote world and not remote world, but I think establishing relationships with the EPD engineering design kind of counterparts and making sure that you are generally available, you know, for for them to kind of come to you with thoughts and feedback. And then, like I mentioned, the biggest thing is that you don't want your PMs to feel like you're going around them or that they're put them on the defensive. So just over communicating this stuff. Like I've in the past, I have been like, hey, let me spend some time (laughs) with other folks in the team and figure out what's going on. And, And again, just over communicating that and making them feel like to your point, you're trying to help. And this initial kind of digging in is not necessarily, because you feel like this specific thing is fundamentally going wrong and they're screwing up.
0: Yeah, and I also try to, on the overcommunication part, part of that is not just overcommunicating why you're doing what you're doing, but also where your feedback is coming from and why your feedback is the feedback that you're giving and just trying to say, like, this is every single piece of information, do with it what you will because I wanna make sure you understand where I'm coming from. Absolutely, absolutely.
1: I don't know if you've done this more in remote world, but since I recently joined Robinhood, there's a lot of emphasis on written communication, which has been a huge help, <laughs> to be totally honest. So obviously, PRDs have always been written, but there's this general culture around writing down anything and everything, whether it's thoughts on an approach, obviously, you know, more strategy conversations. And that has also been really helpful because then it's not as reliant on, to your point, like being able to join meetings and and understand or use that as kind of the main forum. Like I do think that pushing PMs and and written communication can be like a huge win.
0: I always try to strike a balance or at least I don't want to force people to write things down when it's not additive to their workflow. So I try to be sensitive to that. But I do think that if it's like, just tell me where I can go to find this information so I don't have to bug you is a thing I find myself doing a lot. And then also try to write down everything so that we don't have to constantly rehash and we have a record of the decisions we've made because like, I definitely forget when we've done things. So I also find that to be helpful. Totally, totally. I think when I think about it, there are probably two categories of feedback that we we tend to have when you're managing
1: PMs, right? So first is core product thinking, you know, how are you approaching things? How are you approaching this problem? How are you making decisions along the way? And that's where I think the written communication is super helpful because also the expectation is that a lot of that shouldn't be documented. should be documented in PRDs, things like that. And I think that in remote world especially, I think the the written communication is, there's a bigger emphasis on it. And that's actually helped me a lot in coaching versus maybe in the past, you know, you would do that in whiteboard sessions or conversations. And those are great for collaboration, but sometimes it can be easier for feedback to kind of fall through the cracks. And then the second category is more in what we were talking about, which is... Generally, how is this person running their team? <laughs> is this a high performing team? What are the dynamics like? And that's where kind of the the spidey senses, the gathering feedback from the peers and figuring out how you can understand what's happening in kind of these meetings and stuff goes a really long way.
0: Right. So then within that, what are the specific topics or areas that you find yourself coaching on the most? And then, I guess, like what are the types of feedback that you're giving in those different buckets?
1: Yeah, I think that the areas that I find the most coaching on, because I find this to be a lot of the connective tissue going from junior to more senior PMs is that structured thinking and strategy. Those are just words, right? And they can yeah. do of things. <laughs> I think what's interesting to me is that strategy isn't just like high-level roadmap, like long-term product vision. It's also just fundamentally, do you have a clear thesis of the why behind what you're doing and the problem that you're trying to solve? And then as you get more senior, are you able to assess all the different potential whys and figure out which whys to work on. <laughs> and so I think that what I, I try to push from a very early point in people's careers all the way through to them being more senior and kind of having more ownership of strategy is that like core structured thinking. How do I look at the scope of my problem space, no matter how small or big that is, figure out what the biggest opportunity areas are, and then figure out how to go after them and solve them? And I think that that's where, like I said, I think the written communication has actually been super helpful and like in very tight feedback loops on that. The second, which is a little bit harder sometimes to coach on, I find, is just like in the moment or general decision-making When I think about a PM's career trajectory, there's all the classic things that we talk about with PM career ladders, but one thing that I find as a manager, like when I close my eyes and I'm like, okay, do I trust this person to just own this entire problem space, like operate autonomously, provide me updates. A lot of it is dependent on their decision-making capabilities and how honed are their instincts around it too. It's obviously a lot of the decision-making is based on some of the structured thinking stuff that I mentioned and making sure you're breaking down a problem in the right way. But it's also figuring out how you develop instincts around making trade-off decisions, right? Or whether it's in the moment, you know, you're at the 11th hour and you have to adjust scope of something or upfront you're planning out a specific project and figuring out how to define your MVP, that ability to quickly drive clarity and figure out exactly how you're going to do something and make a decision, I think is like one of the biggest strengths a PM can have.
0: Just on that point before you move on, I think this is such a critical thing. And I think about this all the time because, and the language that I always think about and that I've had trouble articulating is like this idea of common sense. And it's, I don't think common sense is the right word, but it's sort of like, okay, can you understand all the inputs and not get freaked out and sort of fall into analysis paralysis because of all the changing things? And can you make a call quickly and feel confident enough to make that call, but also understand and not lose it when you turn out, you make the wrong one, because that also happens. And so I think it's not just like rapid decision making, but it's like owning the outcome of those decisions and being fine with the possibilities that are going to arrive.
1: Absolutely. Right. Because the where you see CAMs end up in that decision paralysis is the, I'm not comfortable making a call and accepting the risks and trade-offs, right? right. <laughs> and that's yeah. where like the coaching can often happen, right? Is saying, okay, well, let's talk this out. Let's let's make a call on this. Let's like understand the risks and trade-offs and move forward, you know, and have that rise to action. Totally. And then the other thing that I think a lot about is, um, it's sort of related to this actually, is what are the cycles for a PM to think expansively versus iteratively? And I think, Obviously, it depends a lot on their scope and kind of the, the space that they're owning. And sometimes there's a natural cycle of these things, right? Like you'll have your quarterly or yearly planning, and those are moments to take a step back. But I think as it relates more to kind of this concept of decision making, I think figuring out, you know, when you're when you're first sinking your teeth into a problem, there's an always an interesting decision point around are you gonna think. Super expansively and broadly, and whether that's doing like foundational research or bigger design sprints, are you going to tackle this with more of that experimentation and iteration mindset? And there's never like a perfectly right answer, right? It really depends on the context of the situation. But the wrong choice, I think, can often cause a lot of swirl in either direction.
0: A related thing to me is also not only when to think expansively or iteratively, but also when your product needs that. And maybe that's actually the same thing you're saying, but like when to, we're actually not going to do these small fixes. We're going to swing for something bigger versus actually we need to just stick with this and, and iterate. I think that's a call that I think a lot of PMs struggle with because it's scary. It, like the iterative improvements are known and the big, the expansive thinking is unknown. And that's, again, goes back to, can you, can you accept the responsibility for that choice?
1: Absolutely. The interesting thing that is that I also find the opposite happening sometimes where the unknowns can like sort of pile up and essentially cause this like over reliance on being like, I need to do like expansive like research and design, and really try to wrap my head around this entirely and essentially actually be paralyzed by that sometimes, you know, versus saying, Hey, we can also learn <laughs> along yeah. the way, you know. And again, like, I don't think it's necessarily a binary decision, but I have seen where PMs often early in their career actually, I don't want, I don't know how to say this properly, but like almost essentially use research as a crutch and say, Hey, like, I, I have no idea. <laughs> um, yeah. and so let me let me kind of like tackle this like holistically. And again, I'm never going to push back on obviously doing foundational research or, or understanding something. But I do find that like that connect. There's a fine line between the need to do it and and product using it as a crutch. Sometimes
0: I think that comes back to your point that you made about intuition, because in my opinion, I think that's probably like someone who's a little bit more junior who doesn't have a honed sense of okay, I know enough to start on this path versus I need to know every single thing that's, that could possibly happen on this path before I'm comfortable dipping my toes in the water. Absolutely. hundred percent. I'm curious of, and this, I think this is a good sort of segue because we also wanted to talk about, I was also curious to hear from you about how the role changes based on the stage of the company. And I often think about early stage PMs who are really great at early stage companies are like the zero to one, you know, let me ship something, let me tackle that big thing. And like, maybe I think stereotypically wouldn't need to know all of the edge cases to get started. But you've been at a bunch of different stage companies, and you've seen the role progress. So I'm curious, like, what are the stages that you've been through? And kind of how was the the role different at those different places?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'll caveat that I think there's some great thought leaders out there who have really created kind of a structured guide to the different stages of a startup and a company and what you look for in product. And some of those things resonate with me. And then I've had this, these, some experiences that kind of feel like a little bit of an offshoot. So what I'll do is I'll give you my my experience of, of the different areas and what I've seen. And so uh, just some quick background. So there are kind of three distinct Parts of my PM career. So I first became the PM when I was at ESPN. I was in engineering and transitioned into product. What was really interesting is that ESPN, if you think about it from the outside, probably seems like you know public company, part of Disney, big, mature, etc. But when I was at ESPN, the digital team was actually relatively nascent, and so I was actually one of the guinea pigs for product in general at ESPN. <laughs> and so I was one of the very first PMs ever at the company. I moved over from engineering. Oh man, it was, it was crazy, right? Because what is this job? (laughs) Uh, Internally, it was also like, why do, why did we create this organization? Who are these people?
0: Yeah. And I imagine it wasn't like you were just attending sporting events, which of course, when I think about people who work at ESPN, it's like, oh, cool, sports.
1: I did do some of that too. Perfect. <laughs> but, yeah, and I, and, you know, It was obviously easier for me because I had built a lot of relationships and stuff in the organization coming from engineering and obviously also the engineering product relationship is really critical. But again, I was kind of the guinea, one of the guinea pigs for a product. And over my last couple of years there, we grew the PM team to, I think, almost 30 to 35 people. So it was a really fascinating stage of the company, despite ESPN overall being a lot bigger and more mature. That was my first experience in product. Very interesting, very unique. Then I joined the skim where I was employee number 10, first product hire, and uh, was there for about four and a half years. So grew the product organization from the ground up across product design, research, etc., and went through all those early stage startup phases, right, of me being sole and only PM to hiring PMs and figuring out how to scale that. But again, that kind of series A to series C, 10 to 200 about. And then most recently, and where I'm at today is that I'm at Robinhood. So high growth stage, I would say the more traditional mental model for product, which I'll get into a little bit more, where we have a product organization, very much growing, but overall like fits into a bigger organization, was relatively well established when I joined. So um, those are kind of just, that's a quick background. Of my experience. So I think what's always interesting is that now when I take a step back and look across all three, I think I've seen product in very different shapes and forms. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think a couple things that I think about. The first is that, so like I mentioned, you know, I think there are many great thoughts out there around literally what you look for, and I'll get into that and you know the types of PMs that you need. Before I get into that, though, I think that one thing that's been really fascinating to me is actually just the sheer definition of product can change a lot through the stages. And what I mean by that is when I was at the Skim, for example, product was essentially the default role and kind of uh, owner of Anything. (laughs) So, you know, like when I look when I think about Robinhood and even ESPN to an extent, product management was the way our traditional mental model for it, right? You know, and obviously that still can have a a wide definition, but it was driving product development, et cetera, et cetera. And at the scam, it was such an early stage startup that product was the GM, (laughs) was kind of like the anything that required user focus, product. like kind of was the driver of. And Mm -hmm. there were trade-offs to that. I absolutely loved it because I think it really put product thinking at the center of the company and really pushed that. But it also kind of messed with the actual definition of product. So just as an example, I remember early on in my time there, we thought about our social channels as a product and we thought about hiring a PM for that. But then when you actually think about the skill set required for putting content on a social channel, you're like, okay, wait, is that actually the right way to do that? You know? Um, Same with more of a GM model, right? So whether it was, you know, thinking about a personal finance business or an e-commerce business, product tended to be kind of like the default role that that we would think about to put in there when maybe that's kind of bastardizing a little bit of the role of product between a PM versus more of a GM type.
0: Is that because you think that the people who are typically PMs are just flexible enough to apply their problem solving to all of the stuff that's left over when you're doing that type of work?
1: Oh, yeah, I think there were two reasons for it. And I see this a little bit um, everywhere is that to be a good PM, like we talked about, like structure thinking <laughs> and, you know, really like uh, t- thinking about the ability to look at a undefined space and figure out, you know, okay, how do I tackle this? What are the problems to solve? And then execute on it. That's an incredible skill set. that's very applicable beyond pure product development. So I do think like the, there's kind of a, there's generally always a need for that type of thinking. And you find that often mostly in PMs. And then the second is actually, I think that companies that are very user-focused, there's just a natural fit there. So this is what I found at the skim. I mean, the company just live and breathe like customer obsession, even before, this existed there when, before I joined. Like the founders felt that way. It was just like the desire for research, the desire for thinking about customers and talking to them and approaching everything for that customer first mindset was core to the culture. And so again, by nature of that, when you think about any sort of role to get something off the ground and drive it, whether it was product development or not, the combination of strategy and structured thinking and customer obsession is exactly what the company needed. <laughs> you know, right. and that's what PMs are often able to do. That's just kind of like my random thoughts on that. Um, is like kind of, I think what I've seen is that, this, again, that's been really interesting is that is the definition of role and role of product can also pretty fundamentally change through different stages of the company. But then we talk about, OK, what do you look for in PMs and all of that? You know, I think a lot of what we've talked about definitely resonates. So, you know, when you're in that early stage. Either you're getting your first product off the ground or you're in that kind of high growth stage of, you know, product you found product, product fit, you're in high growth stage and you need to iterate, but also figure out what's next. That PM, like all around athlete, get shit done, ringleader person mm-hmm. is absolutely what you need. And I think what you often look for are is the hustle, the not needing to have domain knowledge to sink your teeth into a problem and just go at it. And I think that's, and that's true. Of, I think any early stage hire, but especially for PMs.
0: Yeah. How do you see that changing? Because I, having joined, I joined Drift when we were just about 80 people and now we're about 400 and the role is obviously changing like pretty quickly over that time. And I would say when I joined, it was absolutely like, I had no background. We work in marketing technology and I didn't even know what a CRM was, but I was like, no problem, we'll figure it out. And now the product is more nuanced, the customer base is more nuanced and we need more expertise in the problems that we're solving. And so I've had to really remind myself to focus on what is this market and how does this stuff work? And I need to be more of an expert in it. And I'm wondering if you've seen that progression also at the companies you've been at.
1: Yeah, I definitely have. So I think there are are two things in that vein. So the first is it's not as simple as saying, you know, once you get to a certain stage, then you you shift from that all around athlete, kind of zero to one thinker (laughs) to the domain knowledge expert. Because I also think that no matter what stage you're at as a company... What a PM who's not an expert can bring to the table is pure first principles thinking. (laughs) And that is really valuable no matter how mature your company is, because whether that's, hey, we want to explore an entirely new product area and we want to approach it with that same kind of first principles thinking that we did when we first started the company, right? Or just there might be certain aspects or features of your product that the domain knowledge is relatively straightforward to acquire. And again, having the trade-off between that and having really strong. Fundamentals in product, the fundamentals are just more important, and then. But I think that like it just depends, right? So today, you know, I work at Robinhood and financial services. There are aspects of it, whether it's you know things like risk or things that are more tied to the the full stack of financial services that are just really helpful for somebody coming in to just have that domain knowledge and expertise and just having done it before. So I would just say it depends. Like, where do you want to? Where do you want? the first principles thinking to be valued first and foremost, and where would it just be really hard for somebody without the domain knowledge to hit the ground running, to, again, have those intuitions and instincts that have been honed over time that are important in the domain. So the second thing that I think we need to be mindful of as you kind of shift from the PM being the center of all things to PM being kind of more pure product is the benefit of the latter, like, like what I often hear from growing companies and even PMs who are going from early stage to later stage PMs are like, we miss those days. You know, we, we miss yep. when product was kind of the center of everything. And it's true. I love that stage too. But what I find is the benefit of the later stage when you can be more focused on actual product development is that you essentially get to unlock, like a lot of people call like the product zone of genius, right? Is that when you think about the way your time is spent over the course of a week in earlier stages, it is, maybe i mean in my experience it's like 7030 random shit, 30% actual product development. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a, that tracks for me. Exactly. And then later on, you know, the benefit of focus and kind of making a more mature product organization and a, a more mature business overall is that you get to actually spend your time doing pure product thinking, thinking about how to kind of push things forward. And that is really, really important. And so I think it's a tough transition, but once you get through it, it unlocks so much for PMs.
0: Okay. So I want to switch gears a little bit because I'm really curious. So now we have a a better understanding of sort of how we're coaching PMs, what we're coaching on and how the role is changing sort of as the stage of a company changes. But I'm curious in your experience, how did you make the jump through those roles and specifically from PM to managing PM? Because that's the other thing that I think people talk a lot about when we're talking about managing PMs and giving feedback is, okay, well, what did it take for you to get from here to there? And then how do you describe that to the PMs you're working with?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I would say this was really hard for me. And I think it was hard because I had to make the decision to hire PMs. <laughs> so what I mean by that is like I did it, I did this at the skim. I was not in a mature product organization where I was a PM and there was kind of a career ladder and I went for the management role. I was an early stage startup where I was the PM and I had Mm -hmm. to make the decision for myself and for skilling myself and skilling the business to hire. (laughs) And so yes, I got all the advice in the world to do it, you know, whether it was the founders or advisors, but this is just something that I've now learned in my career and hopefully will not do in the future, but like it just took too long. You know, I think what I, when I look, back at that decision point. I think for me, it always felt hard to quantify and justify the need to hire PMs and a team of PMs versus things that I think are a little bit more straightforward, like engineering or design or sales even, right? Like the PM PM in me wants to be like, yeah, we'll figure this out. We'll just get shit done, you know? Mm -hmm. And do I really need to scale myself or can we focus that hiring on, again, things like engineering or design or sales, et cetera?
0: It's also hard. I think one point on this is that Molly Graham gives a really good talk. About this, about giving away your Legos, we talk about that a lot about at Drift about how we have to be prepared to give away our favorite projects to go work on other stuff, and that can I can't even imagine how hard that is when you're the first PM and it's all your Legos, and then you have to dole out some of them. Absolutely, I think
1: the other thing that I was fearful of in hindsight, I don't even think I realized this at the time; it was more subconscious. Was that what was the role of the PM as I had to because I. <laughs> So much stuff, like whether it was your processes across the company, whether it was like I said, kind of playing more of like an almost GM role. I think I was also fearful of saying, okay, how do I make sure that when I when I do hire like these PMs are set up for success? I actually don't think I have set a great precedent for what a PM is at the skim. I think I've just done a lot of things, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know. <laughs> yeah. So I, I put it off. In hindsight, I'll hopefully know next time that listen to your instincts and also listen to the people around you who are giving you advice, right? And so that was. Some history on how I did it. In terms of, like, just generally taking a step back and saying, okay, you know, how do you decide to generally make the jump to from PM to manager group PMs? It's always interesting to me because I do think that ICPMs, by nature of the role of a PM, have a lot of responsibility, ownership, accountability, scope, and can continue to grow that, right? Because this is always the case, I think, with IC versus manager tracks. like If you do this right, an IC can continue to grow in scope and responsibility and all that in an organization without needing to become a manager. I think that's absolutely true of PMs. And I think from day one as a PM, you have a lot of that. (laughs) And so to become a manager, I think you kind of just got to go into it eyes wide open. So one thing that I'll be honest about is that I... I've always genuinely loved management, which is which people think is weird. But I just really like it. I think I've I've always taken to it from the first time I did it as an engineer, all the way through to now. Like it's something that I genuinely thrive on, and even if I'm not actually doing the thing, I get more value and joy out of seeing the people around me do it. That's what you often hear from people who like managing, and so that's why it was a pretty straightforward jump for me because I I loved it, you know. And I also wanted to learn how to scale myself and grow as a leader. Generally, though, I do think that it's a really important decision for. PMs. Because again, you you can drive strategy, have a lot of responsibility and scope without being a manager. And all the things we just talked about, about the challenges of managing a PM are real. <laughs> and so eyes wide open.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I, it's interesting because I think a lot of people I've at least seen in my experience, people don't want to admit that they don't like it because they see it, that maybe it's the only path that they see for moving up. And so there's this thing like you don't want to say that you don't like doing it because you don't want to cut off this path for you. But I think I at least haven't really seen a lot of great examples. I haven't really worked with many people who are super senior IC product people or product managers. And so I just don't have a many, enough role models, I think, to understand like what that path looks like. So I think a lot of PMs are like, well, I don't know what that looks like. So I think I have to be a manager to move up and have the impact I'm looking for. But maybe they don't like management, but then they don't want to admit that. Yeah. No, that
1: makes sense. It's interesting because I think you're right. I don't think that there are a lot of companies that necessarily have that exact example and, and model for it. But when I think about it, all the things that we said earlier in this conversation around a PM is the type of role that you want to throw at a problem. That skill set and that opportunity exists at every company in some way, shape, or form. Whether it's you know new area that the company wants to invest in, like let's throw somebody at it, and I, and I and I think that ca- that can often be disassociated from also managing a team.
0: Yeah, that's a fair point. So, what skills do you think really helped you as you made that jump?
1: Kind of like what I mentioned earlier, this is generally true of management, right? Figuring out how to communicate openly, honestly, frequently, learning what your feedback style is and being able to do it early and often. Those are things that are true of all manager roles in general, I think, and definitely something that I had to overcome a little bit. You know, I think I was a little bit more of a people pleaser before I became a manager, you know, and worried about conflict and that served me fine as an engineer, <laughs> um, yeah. but did not was not going to work as a manager. So all all those things definitely were true. I would say specifically to PM though, I think that you have to get Twice as comfortable with sharing feedback, like I said, before you have all the information. Knowing how to have a a communication style around feedback where you're bringing it up and you're able to have a conversation about it. Because I think often when you become a new manager, you're kind of coached on here's how to deliver feedback. (laughs) It's very structured. Here's what I'm seeing and hearing. Here's the feedback I have for you, et cetera. And I actually think to be a successful PM manager, you can't wait for that level of structure. (laughs) You have to figure out how to have it in a more unstructured way and build a really like very tight relationship with your PMs to figure out how you can flag this stuff early and often. And then the second thing I would say is, again, sort of something we talked about earlier, like you have this abstraction layer, right? And so you're kind of always operating with a little bit of a default state of trust, right? Because in order for a PM to be successful, they have to have autonomy. And so you have to get comfortable with, I think at least, like I operate with a default state of trust and then figure out how I can keep tabs on what's happening, hold my PMs accountable. And I think that can be really hard, especially if you're coming at it from somebody who has a tendency towards micromanagement or feeling like they need to really dig in.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I one tool that I've used in the past, especially when I might be working with someone who I haven't worked with before, is saying, I want to get to that default state of trust, but in the first whatever period of time, just show me everything, copy me and everything. I'm going to be way in the weeds just until we understand each other and we understand how we both communicate. Because it's one thing to say, this is my communication style. And it's another thing to experience it. So I'm always like, let me just set the just set expectation that this is going to be annoying for a month and then I'll back off.
1: Yeah. That is a great example of the figuring out how to over-communicate yeah (laughs) right instead of just doing it and so that and i think even that alone establishes a really great two-way understanding
0: yeah exactly yeah i think one of my first managers he showed up i think he he might have been mckinsey or something and we were at a different consulting firm and he was like i'm gonna trust but verify so first we're gonna build that trust and we're gonna do a lot of verification i was like okay (laughs) uh here we go (laughs) So, okay. My last question for you is, i just curious to hear what advice you have for people who are thinking about becoming managers and then also selfishly curious about, you know, okay, you're already a manager. What's your advice for getting to the level after that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this is true for, I think, anybody who wants to become a manager in a variety of disciplines. Make sure that you have the right intent behind it because it's a lot harder than you think. I say this to people in general This might sound a little coarse, but fast forward to when you have to fire your first person because trust me, you're going to have to. Are you ready for that? And also, you know, for PM specifically, like you'll just have to let go of a lot more than you think. Like right now you're a builder. You love getting shit done, shipping results, but also defining strategy and having ownership over a product. You're going to actually have to let go of that. And I do think that is a huge, a huge change and a huge leap. I felt that actually a little bit too with my engineering transition and it's definitely true of PM. So I think for me, what I really try to look for in people who want to become managers is that the why is actually tied to management and to our earlier conversation, like it's not purely for this is my only path to career growth, right? Because it's it's going to be hard and it's an, it's it, management can be an uphill battle. It's also the best thing in the world. Like I said, I, I absolutely mm-hmm. love it, but it's it's really hard. You don't get a lot of the joy and satisfaction that in the same ways that you do when you're a PM. And then to your second question. I think there's a huge jump from being a manager of PMs to kind of being at that leadership or executive level role. And obviously, that also depends on the size of the company, right? <laughs> Sometimes those things are one and the same, but you know, at bigger companies, there's a pretty big distinction there. In general, I think when you're at a VP or a CPO level, the job really does fundamentally change. Because when you're a manager of PMs, but you're not at that leadership level, Yes, you're abstracted from the work, but you're still kind of generally tied to it, right? Like you've got this area, you're coaching the PMs, you're ensuring that, you know, we're delivering on results and and all of that. At the executive or VP level, Your entire perspective just shifts, right? And actually, it's way less about results and and what's happening in the month-to-month of the different teams. And it's about figuring out how you connect the dots between product vision and product thinking and the overall company so I remember when I was at the skim what was really really important to me was that product thinking was at the center of the company's long-term strategy three to five year vision is based on what customer problems we want to solve over time and why do we think we're best suited to do so how do we have research to support that and then how do we infuse product thinking throughout the organization not just the product team and so you're, you become this kind of dot connector <laughs> between company vision and infusing that with product thinking with the actual roadmap and executing that and kind of that that role is really critical, obviously, for every business, but it's a very different role than a PM or uh, managing PMs more at that level.
0: Awesome. Well, Deerja, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate getting all of your advice and your tactics on how to be a better manager.
1: Thank you. This was awesome. Um, loved being on this, and this is always fun to talk about.